We're going to be in John today, John chapter 4, if you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you or under your chair, most likely. And if not, you can find it on a mobile app or you can just follow along as I read. But uh, we actually have been going through the Gospel of John looking at big picture themes. And as I said, we have three different themes going on. We have I am statements that Jesus made. He makes seven of them in the Gospel of John. We have seven women who had uh, powerful encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of John. And then we also have seven lengthy personal discussions that Jesus had with individuals. And today in our text in chapter 4, we really see all three of those. So it's uh, the intersection of all three themes, which is pretty cool. And as we go through this study, and as you go through personal study at home, let me encourage you to always be thinking about two big picture things. One, which is very important, is what is the text saying? What is the story that I'm reading? What are the details of it? Because so often we just jump to conclusions uh, for exercise, as Ron said, or interpretation or application, and we don't really have a good idea of what's going on. And the second thing I want you to always be thinking about, and particularly as we go through this series, is why is the particular author, this being the Apostle John, and understanding that all of the authors of Scripture were guided under the inspiration of God, That's why his word is inerrant and infallible. But why are they presenting the material the way that they're presenting it? Because uh, even a kind of superficial reading of the Gospels goes to show us that all of the Gospel records are not the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. That's why they're called the synoptics. John kind of does his own thing. And a lot of people think that particularly the unique material that we find between chapter 13 and chapter 18 reflects the fact that John saw a lot of stuff that the other disciples didn't see. You know, when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Peter, James, and John that were with Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, same trio. And so John saw some things that the other nine didn't always see. But anyways, a lot of stuff going on today, and I want you to be thinking particularly today about why does John present the material the way that he does. And today, uh, typically as we look at the woman at the well in John chapter 4, You have to ask, is John presenting this story because the Gospels are lacking for examples of sinful women? You know, we got the woman caught in adultery. The Gospels present the woman who is anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and the costly perfume. You know, is John destroying in one other example of a sinful woman? And is there another reason, perhaps? And we're going to discover that today. Um... So let's look at our text. Let's begin chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to comment as we go along because we're going to read 42 verses today and re- read the whole thing and go back. is kind of redundant. So we'll, we'll make our way through it as we go. John writes, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he, Jesus, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. The text is that Jesus knew, not that he heard. Yes, it's possible that Jesus could have heard that, you know, the Pharisees had figured this out, but it says that he knew, and John is speaking of Jesus's omniscience, that being in human flesh, he was still God, and he knew all things. The fact that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, I think, emphasizes at least two things. One is that he is superior to John and superior to others. And the other is that John is emphasizing 
the Apostle John, the fulfillment of John the Baptist's words when John said early on in the gospel, he must increase and I must decrease. And we've said how many times, what a, what a wonderful servant of God John the Baptist was that as Jesus started his public ministry, John the Baptist said, there's the guy. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that I've been prepping you for. And John wasn't like, hey, come back. It's, you know, follow me. No, it was all about handing people off to Jesus. And John the Baptist did that so beautiful. Also, the fact that Jesus commissioned his disciples uh, to baptize people also stresses his superiority over John the Baptist. And it kind of says the message that baptizing with water or in water is for others to do, but only Jesus can baptize people with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what John talks a lot about. Verse 4 says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Some translations say it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. You have to understand, uh, we have got a map up here that I'm going to refer to as we go along, but it wasn't geographically necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria on his way to Judea, uh, to, uh, on his way from Judea to Galilee, um, but it was the most direct route. Now, as you can see on the map here, the central reason, region there, Samaria, was the heart of what used to be the northern kingdom before the Assyrians came and deported many of the, the Israelites who lived there to Babylon in 722 BC. And, and it certainly wasn't culturally necessary for Jesus to go this route or even desirable because there was a mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. They did not like each other at all. And this was because after Assyria had conquered that northern kingdom and deported most of the people uh, back to Babylon, Samaria was inhabited with a mixed population. Uh, this included Israelites left behind after the, the deportation, as well as foreigners who had relocated to the region from other parts of the Assyrian Empire. And if you want to read about that, 2 Kings chapter 17 in the Old Testament kind of elaborates on that. But the, the basic, um, the, the end of it all is that these groups intermarried and they diluted the perceived purity of the Israelites' identity. The Israelites were big upon, you know, we're God's people, we're a, a, a pure people and, and there's no intermarrying which God had commanded. So whenever that took place, they viewed everyone else as Gentiles, as inferior. So there was this animosity. And because of this, in Jesus' day, most of the Jews took a route um, on the other side of the Jordan River through an area or a region called Perea, and rather than going straight through Samaria because they wanted to avoid contact. So when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, he's stressing that the necessity of this was divine. And we see this eight other places in John. We saw it twice in our passage last week in chapter 3 of John, uh, verse 7, Jesus had said, it's necessary that you be born from above. He said that to Nicodemus, meaning that God requires that you be born from above. Jesus also said in chapter 3, verse 14, it's, it's going to be necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up. And by that he meant on a cross, that anyone who looks to him might find salvation. God, God requires that. So in the same way today, he's saying the necessity of Jesus going through Samaria means that Jesus is carrying out God's requirement and doing what his heavenly Father desired for him to do. Verse 5, 
So when Jesus came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy some food. Now remember our two things about interpretation. One is, what is the story telling us? And secondly, why is John presenting the material the way that he does? What's the purpose? And so one of the first questions I ask is, why is John telling us that this parcel of land belonged to Jacob, that uh, Jacob had given it to his son Joseph? And why is he telling us that this particular well that the woman came to draw water out of was Jacob's well? Is there something significant to this? And as is usually the case, yes, there is. There's, there's huge significance to this, and we're going to find that out. First of all, you're not going to find reference to Jacob's well in the Old Testament. There's no backstory. There's, there's, nothing to, there's a lot of places where Jacob dug wells and where his servants dug wells, but there's not any particular place where he said, you know, this is Jacob's well. The place where jo- Jacob wrestled with God and then later on, you know, demanded that God bless him. And when God left, Jacob said, surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't even realize it. He, he made a, a rock monument there and called it Bethel, the house of God. But there's, there's no reference to Jacob's well per se. And there are some fourth century documents and sources, though, that tell us that they found a well about 100 feet in depth in this area, which is one of the deepest wells in all of Palestine. And many scholars believe that the present-day site identified as Jacob's well, which is at the foot of Mount Gerizim, is actually authentic. So there's actually a well today that you can go to that's called Jacob's well, and it's probably the same well as back then, and it's deeper than most every other well in, in Palestine. So there's a rich history here. But, but again, why the reference to Jacob? And I believe that it's famous, that the reference to Jacob is because he's famous with the Samaritans and with the Jews as being an example of somebody that wrestled with God and came away with a blessing. And I think there's a lot of us that feel like that. You know, we grapple with God, we have our doubts, we have our questions, we have our struggles, and we hope that in our, in our journey with God, in our, in our seeking after Him, that there's there's, there's blessing, there's, there's um, more of himself and more of his presence and more of his protection and guidance in our lives. And so I, I believe that that's part of the reason why Jacob is referenced here. And I, I really believe that this woman is coming to this well, as I preached before, for more than water. I mean, it's, it's more than a mundane job of going to, to search for water. She, she's desperately wanting to connect with the God of her forefathers. And she kind of references that in so many words. She yearns for something better than the, the life experience that she's lived so far. She, she's desperately wanting something more. And although it, it really doesn't matter what time of the day it is, when the text says the sixth hour, most people suggest that that's noon. It's noon, it's in the scorching heat of the day. The usual time to get water was early in the morning or in the cool of the early evening, but she's coming in the middle of the day, and they argue that she's coming because she's got she's 
a sinful woman with a shameful history, and she doesn't want that to be exposed and to have conversations with other women. And that all sounds well and good, but this woman doesn't really strike me as being especially timid. In fact, she seems to present as pretty strong. And so I don't know that the time of the day is really the issue here. And and verse 6 tells us that Jesus is weary from his journey, which makes more sense after a day's long journey. And verse 8 informs us that the disciples had gone away to the town to buy food, presumably for a meal, and the Jews didn't eat a lunch. So we're thinking this is probably more like dinner time around 6 p.m., and this would be John telling us the Roman chronology, which began at noon, so the sixth hour was 6 p.m. rather than, than noon. Doesn't really matter, but just something to keep in mind as we're reading through this. The fact that Jesus asked this woman for a drink is surprising on a number of levels. One, under the customs of the day, it wasn't appropriate for men to talk to women. There, there are historians that even tell us that a husband, it wasn't appropriate for a husband to even speak with his own wife in a public place, which is just hard to believe. So for Jesus, a single man, to talk with a woman who wasn't his wife would have appeared uh, extremely scandalous. And on top of all this, she's a Gentile woman. And not just a Gentile woman, but a notorious sinner with a past. There's so many levels of uh, uh, just awkwardness in this. Notorious for being sinful because of her many relationships, as we're going to find out in verse 18. Also, verse 27 is going to tell us that when Jesus' disciples return from getting food, they're going to be amazed that he's talking with a woman. It doesn't seem right to them. Verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A good Jew wouldn't defile himself by drinking from the bucket of a Samaritan, because it would have rendered him um, ceremonially or ritually unclean. But we just read two weeks ago at the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, how Jesus turned the water to wine. And do you remember what kind of water it was? It was water in jugs by the door used for ritual purification, used for washing. And so Jesus symbolically had demonstrated that the old customs, the old taboos are now obsolete. In his changing water to wine, he's saying, you know, some of these rules and regulations and customs and things that you've held on to, they're pretty empty, and you've missed the point of it all. And so in Jesus doing that miracle, he's declaring that, that really a new day has come. Well, John is going to talk more about uh, this as we go along, but in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is, is kind of humorously saying here, your shock would be infinitely greater if you really knew who I was. You're, you're thinking it's odd that I being a man am talking to you, that I being a Jew and speaking to a Gentile, which, you know, they were considered as dogs, kind of, you know, demeaning on so many levels. But he's saying your shock would be infinitely greater if you really knew my identity, who I was. And he refers to God's gift, which you might be, what is God's gift all about? 
And I believe the best answer to that was back in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave the gift of his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm distracted as I'm preaching because the youth are having a fun time at Hume Lake back there on the TV. So you need, if you get bored with me, just turn around and watch the kids at, at Hume Lake. The difference here is that it's not a gift to his son, it's the gift of his son. As, as Jacob had given his son Joseph the gift of a parcel of land, God doesn't give a gift to his son, he gives the gift of his son to us, a pricely, costly gift, his one and only son. And John's going to elaborate on what living water means more through a powerful story in chapter 7. We'll get to that on another Sunday. Beautiful story there. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? And I thought, you know, this woman's response is so typical of a lot of us. We struggle to believe that God can, can fix our problems can help us with our needs unless we understand how he's going to do it. And God is like, you don't have to understand. You with a limited, finite mind do not have to understand how I, an infinite God with resources that you can't even comprehend or physically see, am going to solve your need. I don't need your help. I don't need you to understand. I just need you to trust. I, have, I need you to believe that I am good, that I love you, that I have your best intentions in mind, and I can meet your need. The one who created the universe is not limited in supplying for our needs. Verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? She is expecting a negative response, a negative answer. And again, Jesus is thinking, yeah, I, uh, I'm greater than Jacob. In fact, I created Jacob. I love how the chosen uh, illustrates this because as the woman is saying this, Jesus goes, I, I know Jacob, meaning like present tense, you know, which is kind of like, really? Well, Jacob was, how is that? When it gets to Jesus' divinity. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. But the water that I will give will become in them a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said correctly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He's like, you're starting to get it. <laughs> now, Jewish law was that a, a person could not have more than three spouses, whether it was through death or through divorce. To exceed three was just going way beyond the boundary. So this woman has clearly exceeded that, whether her previous husbands have died or whether they have divorced her. And remember that this is a time and a day and a culture in which the, the men did the leaving and the divorcing. 
And so it's probably better to see this woman as someone who has been the victim of neglect and abandonment and manipulation and abuse. Am I saying that she's not sinful? No. She's living with a man that's not her husband. So I'm not saying she's a pillar of purity and and virtue, but I'm saying she often gets lumped as this horrible, sinful woman who's been with five husbands and now is with a sixth man, just like she's in and out of relationships. But again, realize she didn't do the leaving, she didn't do the divorcing. That's something to keep in mind here. She's probably living with this guy right now because she has given up on the institution of marriage. She has done committing herself to someone who is only going to leave her or use her and then divorce her. She is disillusioned. Now, I've been preaching and studying this passage for years, and I have never read an interpretation like I read this last week. I actually found a commentator this last week who suggested that this woman is lying about her marital status because she is wanting to appear eligible to Jesus. Like, wow, that's interesting. No. <laughs> but, and, and, and to that point, if, if you notice both in the text and it illustrated so well in The Chosen, notice that um, the woman never gives Jesus a drink of water. So if she's wanting to appear eligible, she's failing the test. You know, I, I, I like in The Chosen how Jesus actually says at one point, I'd still really like that drink of water. And it just kind of plays it out like the awkwardness that she is so caught up with questions and who he is that she never really does that. So eh, she fills that. But I believe that there's something else going on here, and it connects with one of the reasons why the Apostle John referenced Jacob in the first place. If you look back in the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 24, you will find that Isaac, Jacob's father, sought after and successfully found a wife at a well. And so later in Genesis 29, when Isaac is getting old and his son Jacob is still unmarried, one of the things he wants to do before he dies is ensure that his son Jacob marries a good, um, healthy Israelite woman. And so he sends Jacob with a servant to go to another well to look for a wife. And Jacob does, and he finds his wife. So there's this imagery here of really going to a well to find your wife is like the dating app of the ancient world. You know, this was what you did. This is how you found a successful godly woman uh, to be a lifelong companion. And understand that, couple that with the fact that we've just read about two sermons ago, two chapters ago, the wedding at Cana, as well as chapter 3, just beyond the text that we studied last week, John the Baptist is being asked about Jesus. And John the Baptist really refers to Jesus as the ideal, the ultimate bridegroom. And so all of that to say that I believe that Jesus is the one doing the proposing. I don't mean that in a physical, earthly sense, but I believe spiritually He's wooing his bride, the church, believers. And he is saying to you and me, I am the one who will never leave you. I am the one who will be forever faithful to you. I am the one who will take care of you when no one else has. 
That's really the imagery here that he's drawing upon, and it's, it's powerful. Now, there's a scene again on The Chosen, which if you haven't watched it, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you, but you've had ample time to watch it, so <laughs> that's my disclaimer, and some of you may actually watch it after this. It's literally my favorite episode in all of the three seasons, and all, yeah, it's just, it, it literally destroyed me, and uh, I get emotional when I say this, so to me, and if I start crying, you have my permission to come over and slap me and bring me back to, you know, sanity, but um, there, season three, episode five, it's the second part of the healing of the, the bleeding woman and the healing of Jairus' daughter. Now, remember that this woman had been bleeding for 12 years, hemorrhaging, and in that culture, bleeding rendered her unclean. She could never go to the temple. She could never pray to God, you know, in the place where they believed prayers were heard. She could never offer sacrifices. She was constantly humiliated and put down and despised. Uh, in fact, she says in those episodes that her own parents had abandoned her. Her own father had said, you are not my daughter anymore. So a lot going on there. Jairus's daughter the irony is she's 12 years old, and she comes down with an illness that literally kills her, and before Jesus can get there, she dies. So that's what's going on here. You know the scene. Jesus is on his way with Jairus to go and heal his daughter, who at the time is still alive. This woman interrupts, and there's a huge crowd of people around Jesus, and the Chosen does a good job of illustrating that. And this woman is on the outside, and as she's on the outside, someone recognizes her and says, get away. You're, you're that bleeding woman, unclean. You, you shouldn't be around any of these people. You're like a leper. And in her desperation, she, she ignores that, and she makes her way to Jesus. She believes, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And so she lunges at him, and she grasps that tassel that comes down off of his garments that the rabbis wore. And she knows and feels instantly that her condition has been healed. And <laughs> The Chosen does such a good job because Jesus literally rocks. It's like a power surge has taken place. And he stops, and everybody stops around him. And it's one of those E.F. Hutton moments where everyone's silent. And Jesus goes, who touched me? And his disciples, as you've read in the gospel, say, Lord, there's all these people around you. Are you kidding me? You wonder who? No. He said, I felt power leave me. Long story short, this woman gets exposed. She's laying on the ground. And... On one level, she's overjoyed that after 12 years and spending money on all these doctors that were useless, she's cured, she's healed. But on another level, she's terrified because the person that she cares the most about has exposed her yet again in front of all these people. And she admits and says, I was the one, Lord. And she tells her story. And Jesus says, my daughter. And she says, I'm nobody's daughter. And he says, yes, you are. And again, he calls her daughter. And just the tenderness of that is so beautiful. And I say that because I believe that's exactly the same way this woman is saying, I have no husband. I am a woman in a culture where I have no worth. I have no value apart from whom I'm married to. And I've had five men who have left me. I am a worthless Gentile dog. I have no identity. And Jesus is saying, I'm your husband. You are my bride, and I will be your husband, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never fail you. And that's the power of what I believe is going on here 
uh, in just such a, a, a graphic way. Powerful, powerful. Well, it isn't harvest time yet, and yet Jesus talks about the fields being white with harvest. And many have thought, well, what's that all about if it was still four months toward, till harvest? And as I've said before, the best uh, probably solution or answer to that is as this woman runs off to tell a town of people about her experience and how she met a man who told her everything she's ever done. The town is coming to hear Jesus, and as they are ascending this mountain in their white flowing garments, Jesus is saying, behold, the harvest is now. And I, I, I love again in The Chosen how when Peter and the disciples get back from buying food, Peter says, did you tell her who you, who you are? Because Jesus hadn't revealed to a lot of people who he was. And Jesus kind of smiles and goes, yeah. And Peter goes, then, then that means it's time. And Jesus goes, oh yeah, it's time. And that episode, season one, episode eight, last episode of the season, it ends with the disciples and Jesus kind of marching down the hill to this vibey music, kind of like game on. It's harvest time. And we are going to reap souls for the kingdom. And it's just this powerful moment where you're just like, yeah, like you want to jump inside of that and be part of that. Just amazing. John the Baptist, uh, chapter 3, last chapter, had told us that, uh, particularly verses 23 to 26, that John was on the west side of the Jordan River doing his ministry, baptizing people, preaching about repentance, which was right next to Samaria. And so chances are John the Baptist is the one who has sown the seed prior to Jesus. And now this woman is sowing seed, and Jesus and his disciples are the reapers. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all of the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed with there, there another two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. You have to understand how profound this is. The, the rabbis of Jesus' day believed that it was better for the words of the law to be burned than to be delivered to a woman. Let me say that again. It would be better for the words of Holy Scripture to be burned than to be delivered to a woman. And thank God that Jesus didn't agree with that. And that he's having this conversation with a woman. But imagine how this woman represents the least likely person that anyone would have listened to. As she went back to the town to share her experience, she didn't have a lot of spiritual knowledge, but her simple testimony was compelling. People could tell something is different about this woman. She is lit. I mean, she is transformed. And they responded. And, and what a... What a boost that is for you and I when we feel like, like what Brittany described about Moses. God, I'm not the one. I, I stutter or I don't know enough about the Bible or you know, I can't share you with others because this and this and this. And God is like, no, you are my chosen vessel. You are the one that I want to use to reap a harvest. How remarkable in view of the male chauvinism of the day, chauvinism of the day and the woman's reputation that so many responded and believed. Like I said, this woman was the least likely person to be a successful missionary. Some have dubbed her as the very first missionary, which is, I think, kind of, kind of interesting. 
She knew very little spiritual truth, but again, she had a simple testimony and God used it. So I want to wrap up this as, as as we leave this for today before we continue on in our series, but a few points of application here. It strikes me that God often works miracles in the least likely places. If you were one of the disciples, you would have viewed going through uh, Samaria as something necessary yet unfortunate. Like, this is a waste of time. Let's get through this as fast as we can get through this. This is not where we want to be. You would have never in your wildest dreams imagined that you would reap a harvest, that this would be the time where Jesus would reveal his identity as the Messiah, as God in human flesh, and that you would reap souls in this harvest for heaven. And so, what, what a powerful point that God often works in the least likely places, the places where we least expect him to work. Also, I think there's a powerful message here for us about the fact that when God calls us, he already knows everything about us. He knows everything about our past. And what a profound point that you will never reach a future point of sinfulness where God will say your sinfulness exceeds the limits of my grace. And I've said that before, and I'll say it again. When Jesus died on the cross, he saw your sins, past, present, and future, the stuff that you don't even see yet, the stuff that I don't even see yet, the stuff that in in the days and weeks and years to come, when we do those things and we think, I've I've just blown it. I've, you know, the warranty's off now. The, you know, got to turn in all my cash prizes and blessings. It's, It's over. You know, God says, no, I saw it all when I gave my son to die for your sins on the cross. And that, that just, take a minute to soak on that this week. Your sin will never exceed the limits of God's grace. He knows everything about us. I also want you to notice that this woman's understanding of Jesus grows and increases the more she accepts what he says as truth. And I think there's a powerful message there. There's a journey from her understanding, hey, he's a Jew. Why is he associating with me a Gentile? Oh, wait, he's a Jew, but he's also greater than my, my forefather Jacob. Oh, wow, he's a Jew, he's greater than Jacob, and he's also a prophet. And all of this, beyond all of that, he's all of these things, and oh my goodness, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one that we've been waiting for and anticipating. And and friends, it comes from taking God at his word, from believing what God says as truth. She, She takes his words and receives them, and the more she doesn't argue and question, but she receives it as truth. The more her understanding of him grows. And I would, I would uh, attest to you this morning that the more you take God at his word, the more you take his, his scripture at face value and believe even the things that don't make sense at face value, trusting that he will give you insight and understanding in time, the more you will grow in your comprehension of who God is and what he can do in your life. And that's exactly the heart of the gospel, you know, and where I like to end every message is that if you're here today and you've never started a relationship with God, it begins with Jesus. Jesus did what you and I could never do. He paid for our sins, and we can't do that on our own. We can't give ourselves eternal life. And God so loved the world, he sent Jesus. Jesus so loved us that he offered himself as that sacrifice that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
And I, I hope that you know him. And if you don't, you can get to know him today through a simple prayer that a friend who brought you here today can lead you through or I can lead you after the service. But that's where new life begins. And what a powerful story today of Jesus declaring, Ego am me. I who am speaking to you am he. It's literally just I am. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh God of the Old Testament. And John, more than any other gospel, 23 times presents Jesus as saying, Ego am me, I am. You know, my favorite part is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he declares that and all of the guards with their spears and clubs and swords drop to the ground. And he has to say, get up and arrest me, you know. Just kind of a comic scene, kind of a Monty Python scene, you know. All these people with power and weapons drop to the ground, and Jesus is sitting there, get up, let's do this, you know. Because he wasn't seized, he gave himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you so loved us that you gave Jesus to, to pay the price for our sin, to be our ransom. That Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, said, it is finished, meaning it is fulfilled. It is paid in full. The sins of the world are paid in full through my blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that if we would only believe in that sacrifice as being efficacious and powerful enough to, to blot out our sin, we would have new life, eternal life with you. Lord God, I thank you that our scripture says, you gave Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become your righteousness through him that you are not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's the only reason why you have delayed your return. And Lord God, I pray if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you, that they would take that to heart, that they would take you at your word and they would experience new life. And for the rest of us who know you, God, that we might draw closer to you, that we might lean into you, that we might seek you as, as your bride and uh, seek you as our husband, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Lord God, we thank you for the gifts and provision that you've provided for each one of us, whether it's a little or a lot, and we acknowledge that everything we have is from you, and we give back today through our tithes and offerings, whether online or physically here, asking that you would bless them and multiply them for your kingdom and glory, both here in Ventura and around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name.